hello and welcome to Four Questions. I'm Alice Evans and I'm here with Associate Professor Yuan Wen Ang discussing her new book. So here's my first question. How did China escape the poverty trap? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Alice, for having me on your podcast. Before I answer the question of how China escaped the poverty trap, I think it is helpful to back up and explain what exactly is a poverty trap. Oh, yeah. The idea of a poverty trap is that we generally believe that we need good, strong institutions like rule of law, modern courts, democratic accountability in order to have economic growth. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that you also need to have economic development in order to get good institutions. Ah, ah. So it is a chicken and egg problem. Countries, poor countries are poor because they have weak institutions and they have weak institutions because they're poor. So that is what we call a poverty trap. Okay. So what can we learn from China's experience? Because obviously only a generation ago, China was not only a very poor country, it was in fact poorer than Bangladesh and Chad. Really? Yes. And it is also governed by uh, a Maoist bureaucracy that is totally anti-capitalist, mm -hmm. not meritocratic and mm -hmm. not technocratic. But only a generation after, we know that now it is the second largest economy in the world. Its government, although having many problems, is also famous for being highly adaptive and entrepreneurial. Mm. So the change we see in China is not only economic, but also institutional. Mm -hmm. So how can we explain this dual transformation? So here's my short answer. The first answer is that how China escaped the poverty trap is that the Chinese government created an adaptive environment within the bureaucracy, allowing local governments all over China to improvise local solutions to local problems. And this adaptive environment enabled them to come up with a huge range of economic and governing models that vary across space within China, that change over time, and that's allowed them to meet the evolving challenges of development. That's the first answer. Okay. The second answer is that because of this adaptive environment, local governments in China were able to take the essential first step out of the poverty trap. This essential first step is that they were able to harness and repurpose weak, wrong, backward institutions to build markets. So things like uh, corruption, lack of private property rights, lack of technocratic agencies, lack of specialization, mm. which we normally think of as problems mm. of development. Yeah, they are problems. They are problems of development, but they were actually able to take these very same attributes and turn them into advantages, into stepping stones for development. So that... Wow, can you give me an example of that? Because that seems crazy. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. So a good example of that is that if you actually look at the history of coastal governments in China in the 1980s, where they had uh, no rule of law, no formal property rights, mm. uh, bureaucrats that were very poorly educated, mm. not technocratic at all, and then the question is how did they get this whole thing started, right? So instead of importing best practices, what the coastal governments in China did is that they used whatever resources that they have at the time. And the best resources were patronage ties within the bureaucracy. So they mobilized the entire bureaucracy, all of the civil servants, regardless of your office, mm. of your function, 
to go and recruit investors using your personal Yeah, they investors. use their networks to they attract inward investment. Right. So if you think about it from a barbarian perspective, mm. this violates the principle of specialization. Mm -hmm. We think that a good bureaucrat should focus on doing what you right, do yeah, they're best, assigned right? Tasks, but yeah. they're not. They're doing it in a campaign mm. mobilization style. It's like getting the whole village involved. Right. right? And it also violates the principles of impersonal relations, which sure. we think it's so central to corruption, mm. right? And it, the other thing, the other principle that they violate is that they ha they devise basically what was like a profit sharing system. So if you bring in an investment and it's worth a million dollars, you can take a cut of that investment as your reward. And if you fail in some of your targets, sometimes they are actually penalized and they have to pay a fine. And so all of these really wacky mm. uh, strategies that they took. Can you get another? The book has some great examples of wacky strategies. Wacky strategies. Can you share a couple of examples with us? Uh, so these are the... Like the one with the teachers putting the school as collateral. Oh, that's right, that's right. Um, another wacky strategy is um, in China, you'll see that they have these really lavish new school buildings all over China, mm. even in relatively poor places. Mm. And they use really extreme methods to raise funds for these schools mm. because a lot of times the funding does not come from the government. The government does not have enough funding mm. for these projects. And so in Shandong province, which is in the north of China, I met a principal and he was really proud of his entrepreneurial strategies. And some of the things he um, told me was, for example, he said that uh, I was able to raise this millions of dollars for our lavish school buildings by having the um, be by having the teachers uh, loan their money to me. And so I asked him, you know, how were they able to loan the money to you? Well, they mortgaged their property so that they were able to loan me the money, you know. And to him, that was, you know, a really sort of entrepreneurial strategy. And I tried to keep a straight face <laughs> because this was wrong on so many levels, right? But um, it's a very different mentality. It's sort of all-in mentality. Yeah, it's like yeah. Mobilize the entire village. If we do well, you will all get to keep a share, you know, of the benefits. And the sort of hidden context in that conversation is that if you are a school teacher in a county in China, it is actually a very good job, right? So you want to keep that job, you want to help the school, you want to help the school principal, and all of the school teachers usually have a spouse who is a civil servant. Mm. And so it's kind of an all-in effort where you know everyone is even willing to pit in their personal property, their personal resources, in order to sort of promote this growth or public goods provision collectively. And is that something, is that a sort of um, an ideological commitment that people feel they're doing well when the, the whole village prospers or is it due to individualized rewards like each individual civil servant will get some kind of increment? It definitely is a combination mm. of the two mm. because if it were just ideology then China would have succeeded when it was a socialist country. Right, yeah. But it, it did not succeed, it mm. failed miserably people did not want to chip in mm. their resources. Mm. So it's a combination. Right. Once markets open, what they did was they, they created high-powered incentives throughout society. Individualized incentives. Individualized mm. incentives. Um, things that we would find very problematic in a modern, sort of legal, rational mm. setting. Mm. So civil servants could take a cut of investments that they recruit. You know, teachers could take a cut of um, um, tuition that is raised. Mm. Um, everything becomes sort of um, 
everything becomes an incentive. Hyper incentivized. That's okay, right. so you you mentioned um, the coastal cities using their their personal networks to attract inward investment, and obviously being very successful in that regard. How have these dynamics of int- improvised iterative steps to encourage uh, economic development and good governance? How those varied across China? Like, how do they compare in inland China? That's a very good question because China is a very large country. It is more of a continent than it is a country. Bearing in mind that it has 31 provinces, and I believe the biggest province in China, Shandong province, has as many people as the whole of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah. it does. So it is sort of like governing 31 countries. Right. And so the stories that I find in the 1980s and the 1990s in coastal China was not found in inland parts of China at the same period of time. Right. The reason is that different parts of China are at different stages of development, mm. largely a reflection of their geographic conditions. Okay. If you're on the coast, you very easily uh, attract FDR, you industrialize, sure. you capitalize, and so on. But the interesting finding, which is one that I did not sort of expect, is that you have a process of delayed innovation diffusion in China. So the things, the wacky practices Mm. that they did on the coast in the 1980s and 1990s disappeared by the time they entered into the 2000s. Because once you've become a middle income economy, you don't need to have your crutches anymore. Mm. You do not need to have extremely high powered incentives, Mm. you do not need to have all civil servants. Oh, so in the coastal cities there aren't these high powered incentives anymore? They have. They have very, very much diluted them over time. And the whole logic of it is that as you become richer, your resources change. Right, you're not desperate like you were before. Okay, you have okay. new kinds of resources, okay. and also your goals and your preferences mm, change. Mm. So when you were the analogy that I give to my students is that when you are poor, you don't care about the quality of food. You just yeah, want to yeah, put food yeah, yeah, yeah. on the table, and right? then it changes to more quality. Exactly. And, and so as as local governments become richer as well, they realize that well, we don't have to be desperate. We mm. don't need to have mm. every single kind of factory coming. In mm. fact, we want to be selective now. Mm. I only want high tech industry. Mm. on services, you know, and, and so on. Mm. And so once your preferences change, you realize that specialization makes sense. Yeah. Impersonal relationships mm. make sense. Formal property rights are necessary. Mm. To and attract so the more quality investment. Exactly. And so it's a question of institutional fit, you okay. know, between uh, early and late stages of development. So the processes that you saw in the 1980s and 1990s in coastal China, are those the same processes that we see now in inland China or are there any differences between the two? You see a very large degree of replication, but this oh, right, replication okay. is delayed. Right. So okay. if you go to inland China today, you find that a lot of current practices and policies and wacky strategies that they have mm. are a replication of what the coastal parts of China did 20 years ago. Okay, wow. Which is sort of surprising because no one planned this. Mm. This is not Beijing's plan. Beijing had never planned. But it's small-scale local experimentation in order to attract investment. Okay, but there is something that Beijing did plan, and that was to allow, to provide an authorizing environment for such experimentation. They let people try things out. Why did the CCP do that? Wasn't it worried about regime stability, you know, communist ideals? Wasn't it worried about people trying stuff out and, you know, things might be a a little bit tricky? 
an excellent question, and that is why in my book I use the term directed improvisation.、Mm. What this term captures is the different roles of government in China. The role of the central government in Beijing is like a director of the play.、Mm. What it does is to create the right conditions for adaptation and flexibility at the local levels, instead of telling them exactly what to do. Okay. Because they're not in the capacity, given the complexity, the diversity right, of the right, country, right. to figure out what everyone should do at different points in、okay. time. So they let them decide, you know, and figure out what's the best way. But it doesn't mean that you just anything goes. But what, what explains the tradition for the what what, what explains the transition from a sort of Maoist state-directed everyone should do、yeah. this, everyone should. Well, why did they become more flexible? Well, I, there were several reasons, but one of the big reasons I think is just the massive failure、mm. of the Maoist、right. period,、mm. where they tried central planning. They know that it fails miserably,、um, and they suffered the Great Leap Forward, and then they suffered the Cultural Revolution, and it was with much difficulty that Deng Xiaoping took over. He was a very pragmatic leader, unlike Mao, who was very ideological. Yeah. And Deng knew, as a matter of fact, that China is so big and so diverse, and in such a desperate situation,、mm. that the best people to help the situation is local people. Okay, so here's a question: Was、yeah. it because he feared regime instability? Did he fear a loss of power if they didn't reform, or was it just the sti- our situation isn't working and we're not fixing poverty? Like, was it a political thing or more of a technocratic reason for the transition? Well, I. Can't speculate、mm. exactly what's going on in、no、his、sure. mind, but I would say it's definitely a mixture of、mm. motives.、Mm. My my sort of informed guess would be that for Deng Xiaoping, the first priority is just to put food on the table. Right,、okay. Sure, it is important to you know protect the power、mm. of the、mm. party, but but th- there were just people in China throughout the country、mm. who were starving,、mm. uh, who were in desperate poverty, and so, so I, I think that was his first. So、priority. I guess that's an interesting contrast with why nations fail, which assumes that when you have an authoritarian government, they will just seek to enrich themselves rather than supporting broad-based economic growth.、Uh, yeah, I think that that is exactly right because. We tend to think that authoritarian governments are inherently bad for、mm. economic development, but in fact, the more nuanced and correct story is that with authoritarian governments, you tend to get extreme outcomes.、Mm. It could either be extremely bad, yeah, like yeah, under Mao,、yeah. or it could be extremely good, like under Deng、mm. and in the East Asia development yeah, states. Yeah, of course, of course. But what is very critically important. Mm. And different mm. about China compared to other sort of、mm. soft authoritarian、yeah. states like Singapore、mm. or South Korea、mm. is that China is very very large,、yeah. and the challenges of developing and governing this country is many many times more complicated and complex、sure. than in East Asia. And that is why in China they have to have directed improvisation, which means that the central government does not directly intervene. It only creates the platform,、mm. creates the authorizing environment. For adaptation, and then let local actors throughout China come up with the content and、mm. the plans.、Mm. So that is a very distinct model of the role of government that is different from East Asia. Okay. So next question: What can other low、uh, mi- and middle-income countries learn from this? Why? I mean, why aren't, aren't other countries doing this already? Well, there are several things that other low-income countries can learn from China's experience, and I think the first lesson is that we need to challenge 
our normative labels and our assumptions. Our assumptions is that there is only a single benchmark to good institutions, namely that your institutions should look like institutions in the US, in the UK, and in Denmark, for mm. example, mm. in order to be good governance. Mm. And so we put all of our attention on trying to replicate those good institutions. But what we should really do instead is to use whatever institutions exist in low-income countries and use those institutions to kickstart development. But we can't do that if we are constrained by our normative biases. Mm. When we think that, oh, you know, this is not a best practice. It must be corruption. It must be wrong. So we cannot use this strategy. So we place so many no's mm. upon ourselves. The difference, I think, in China is that because they were not colonized on a large scale for a long period of time, um, China does not have many normative assumptions about what is good and bad. For them, what's important is what works. So for example, in my fieldwork in China, one of the things that surprises me is oftentimes local officials would describe to me the wacky things that they do, mm. and they assume that it is completely normal. <laughs> to be honest, I, mean, I do the same with my own life, but anyway. <laughs> that's right. Um, and in fact, they would sometimes be a little arrogant, and they would say, I think that's what everyone else does. <laughs> I think right. that's what they must do in we Shanghai. We always normalize from right. our own I think practices. that's what, yeah, what, yeah. what people must do in the US, mm. right? Mm. And so, and so do they don't think that what they're doing is problematic, mm. it's, it's wrong, because they're not bound by these normative assumptions about what is right and wrong. For them, they're looking at what works. And so I think that th that is a simple but actually huge step mm. for other low-income countries as and well utilitarian as focus. Yes, as well, no, you pragmatic. Mm. Pragmatic, but I think pragmatic is a very weak term because it sounds like anything goes. Mm. But I'm not just saying anything goes. I'm saying that if you look at the resources and the institutions in low income countries, they will almost always look like the wrong institutions. Okay. So it has to go much further in terms of challenging our own. Okay, so we should be much more flexible. Um, so what can rich countries do to support directed improvisation in, in low and middle income countries then? Um, I think there are several things that can be done. First of all, we need to be more open-minded ourselves. If we go in with a set of assumptions that there are only one set of global best practices and mm. we go in with the benchmarks and, and with the checklist, that will only restrict space for adaptation. So on our part, I think development professionals from rich countries mm. need to inform ourselves mm. of how is it that markets actually emerge in the absence of state capacity, in the absence of good governance. We need to do a lot more research on this so that we have concrete ideas of how this happens because the dominant economic theories the books that we have out there like why nations fail they tell us why nations fail they don't tell us how nations succeed mm, right we need this to learn why despite you know lacking the mm -hmm. right uh, preconditions but that's exactly what you need for development we mm -hmm. need to know how to succeed despite lacking the right preconditions mm -hmm. so we need a lot more research and I would also say we really need to change the way we benchmark things because the way we measure things has a huge impact on the way we think about what's possible what the solutions are mm. and if we insist on using single benchmarks and we just go around to poor countries and think all oh, they have are problems so can you give me an example of a benchmark that you find problematic? 
Um, for example, the worldwide governance indicators, they tell us there are six indicators of good governance, mm. and the countries that score the highest are, of course, always countries like the UK, mm. Denmark, Switzerland, mm. and countries you know like Somalia, Ethiopia, mm. Vietnam, they would mm. score right at the mm. bottom, mm. right? And so what that tells you just by this benchmark is that whatever you have in poor countries is inferior. But what I'm trying to say is that what you have in poor rural traditional countries is different. Mm. Different may not be inferior. And unless we are able to challenge that normative label, we really restrict sort of the size and the possibilities of our toolbox. Okay. So you're saying we need to study what works and understand long-term processes uh, of economic growth and improved governance. And we need to embrace this idea of improvisation, and try new things out, experimentation. So there's this other book that I read, uh, Building State Capacity by Matt Andrews, uh, Lam Pritchett, and Michael Wilcock. And they're, they're also big fans of experimentation. Mm. They've got this idea of problem-driven iterative adaptation, whereby maybe a group of people, particularly in government, come together and they try to identify the problem and collectively work out solutions. That's in line with what you're saying, isn't it? It's very much in line. I think that they have written a very important book. It's very important because it is encouraging the whole development community to go from one size fits all to thinking about adaptation, improvisation. So we have a lot of overlap mm. in those terms. But, but <laughs> <laughs> that's always the but. But my book is different from some of the arguments that they've made in the following ways. What the book does is that it describes some of the key processes of adaptation, such as, you know, you identify a problem, you go for positive deviance, and so forth. So they are describing the mm. steps and mm. the processes. Mm. But what my book does is that it specifies a more difficult problem, which is how do you create the incentives the right environment for adaptation and improvisation because you might say that adaptation is a great thing everyone should do it and I think most people will say yes I agree it's a good thing but a lot of people still refuse to adapt mm. they still refuse to change and they still refuse to innovate mm. because the incentives are not in place the institutions are not in place yeah I guess you have two issues there one is people might be scared to experiment because they're worried about how senior people might treat them and how they're worried about how people might react and so what is they might not have incentives to do any form of experimentation and I think another issue is that you might not have the incentives to have radical pro-poor inclusive growth style I experimentation and there is a third problem mm. which is that in order to authorize experimentation you need to have a system of signaling what can be done and what cannot be done. That is not easy. Mm. So you can't just be, go ahead guys, you know, experiment, do whatever you want. You just get pure chaos, right? Mm. Because everything will just, everyone will just go do whatever they mm. want. Mm. What you want instead is to say, we have these problems, we want to experiment, but this has to happen within certain boundaries. Mm. So experimentation only works if there is discipline and if there's boundaries. Mm. And that's why my book is called Directed Improvisation. Mm. So what we find in the Chinese political system, which is very ingenious, so in one chapter of my book, I look at how policy signals are designed in China. 
and they are actually issued in such a way that local governments are able to understand that Beijing is saying sometimes that you can definitely do this, you must definitely not do this, mm. and you may try to yeah. you know play around yeah. with some solutions on this problem. And because of this system of flexible policy mm. signals, local governments have a clear idea of, all oh right, you know, this is the part where I can experiment, but I must not cross these red lines, oh, yeah. you know, and now I've, I'm given the green light to do something, you know, all the way. So, so it's, it's actually a much more complex problem of institutional design, yeah. more than just describing the steps and processes. Mm. So I guess there are a couple of issues. There. I mean, one uh, in Vietnam where I do my research, this, there's a similar process of fence breaking, they call it, where yeah, you're sort yeah, of yeah, trying yeah, out yeah, new yeah, things. Yeah. But here's a question. Why does the CCP allow some forms of experimentation and not others? So there are a few generalizations that mm. we can make. There are certain things that they would never sort of allow line crossing. For example, any type of collective action that challenges the rule of the CCP. Right, right, right. So yeah, social so mobilization. Exactly. Yeah, so when we talk about experimentation and innovation in China, it's in the realm of managing the economy right. or governing society. Mm, and so we say economically liberal. That's right. Yeah. That, that actually helps the CCP to stay in power. So yes. it's not saying, let's experiment with, you know, politics or experiment yeah. with with, with uh, democratic uh, competition, so mm. do not. So th that is a simple. You don't boundary. see any experimentation with allowing people to vote or some sort of. They do yeah. actually. Yeah, they yeah. do, but they always draw the lines in terms of even when they they allow these experiments. For example, village elections. Mm. The whole point of it is to diffuse yeah. discontent yes. at the lowest level, mm. right? And not to say oh, ultimately this will challenge the yeah, rule of the CCP. Sure, yeah. So, th so there's a few lines that mm. they draw. Uh, so th another way that for them to decide sort of where to allow experimentation is sometimes they may encounter a situation or a problem where even Beijing has no information about. Right. So a good example in the 80s would be the creation of collective enterprises. That was an entirely new thing. There wasn't even a name for it in the 1980s. Mm. And so Beijing will say, why don't you try this? Mm. You know, and then we'll figure out if this is good for our mm. country. Mm. You see this in China today still. So for example, you see this burst of e-commerce. Mm. That's a new industry. Mm. And Beijing doesn't really know, should we regulate it? Mm. How should we regulate it? Mm. And so those are the areas in which they allow for experimentation. What this experimentation does is that it creates feedbacks from local actions, which goes back to Beijing, which allows them then to decide, should I change my policy from ambiguous to clear, saying, mm -hmm. yes, this is great, go ahead, do it. Or should I change my policy to no, you know, this is actually a really bad experiment. Mm -hmm. No one is allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. So if you just think about these examples from China, what you realize is that authorizing adaptation is a lot harder than just saying go ahead and try. Mm. It really involves a lot of thoughtful institutional design. Okay, let me share two ideas with you and I'd be interested okay. in what you think of this. So think about how rich countries can support directive improvisation is one if we provide the right incentives. So for example in global production networks if we provided incentives for countries to reform their wage laws. 
So, for example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership between yeah. the U.S. and the and Vietnam. The U.S. said that if you want to join this international economic partnership and have market access, then you need freedom of association. Right. So that would be an incentive for then the Vietnamese Communist Party to start off with some experimentation. You know, that's the sort of external incentive. I suppose another way in which rich countries might support directive improvisation is they could fund the pilots that the government wants in order to work out small-scale solutions to local problems. Yeah. What do you think of those two different approaches to encouraging directive improvisation? Well, I don't know the particular context yeah, that sure, you're describing, sure. but what you have just said sounds like possibilities. Mm. Um, directed improvisation can manifest in so many infinite yeah. ways. Um, one other way, possibility that I can think about mm. from what you've described is that um, external organizations can help to foster experience sharing. Yeah, instance, horizontal learning, right? right, sure. Yeah, and not only sort of within a country, but across countries. Um, Let more countries learn from China's example rather than what right, Washington thinks that's is right. best. And they can also do, they can also sort of, one, one very important criteria for fostering adaptation is having a very clear model of this is what we consider to be successful mm. and being successful brings you rewards. So mm. if you have a factory in Vietnam, for example, that complies with all of these um, good practices that you talk about and it is proven that because of their compliance mm. and their willingness to protect workers' rights, they have all of these rewards yeah. and support from ILO mm. and so on, then the other factories would naturally yeah. on their own mm think that yeah you know that's a good role model mm. that's good for me so that is a kind of adaptation that so I guess I the big the big takeaway is one yeah. let's not have these benchmarks where we're saying what's good and measuring how countries perform two we need to explore long-term processes of economic growth and understand how it actually happens in poor countries and how how those local maybe slightly funky slightly weird institutions can be supported and three to support horizontal learning so that low and middle income countries can learn from what others are doing well rather than have these best policy solutions. Yeah, I think that's about right. But uh, I would just add that mm. it's not, I would just add that on the benchmark sides, it's about having multiple benchmarks. Right. Okay. So, so you're not against benchmarks? I'm not against benchmarks. Okay. But we need to measure things. I'm a social scientist. We all need data. We need to measure mm. things. But I'm, I'm calling for multiple benchmarks. The way we might think about this is multiple intelligence. Right. If we measure all human beings by IQ, mm. some people would just be considered very stupid. Mm. But in fact, they may be good at other things. Right, like we just okay. talked about this morning. They may be good we at... We chat about this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they may be good at yeah, like, yeah, yeah. creative thinking. Right, they okay, may yeah. be good at navigating yeah, right, you know, sure, uncertain sure. environments. Okay. But all of this is not captured in the traditional okay. IQ. Right. So we need to be more flexible and open-minded with different benchmarks. Uh, exactly. I mean, Because if people are just measured by their IQ, a lot of people just walk around feeling sad for being stupid well and we might say that you know a lot of poor countries feel exactly yeah absolutely, way, right? absolutely, absolutely, like, I absolutely. never do well on the WGI you know it seems that I'm weak yeah. I'm stupid I'm inferior mm. but we need to be have multiple benchmarks that says you're not good at rule of law for example mm. you're not good at barbarian bureaucracy but it looks like you're pretty good in other things okay. and so that is actually a simple but very very big normative change that will influence practices on the ground. Wonderful. Well, I will happily say that, Wen Wen, you are a brilliant author and the book is a real delight. There are so many fascinating stories, so much to learn from. Um, thank you so much for thank being my guest. Thank you so much for having me.